Well, um, to kind of begin the message this morning, I want to tell you about a story that I read this past week. It's about Max. Max was a Boy Scout. And at the end of the summer, his Boy Scout troop uh, went to Mammoth Cave to do an exploration of the cave. Now, they didn't do the 90-minute kind of the easy family tour. They went on the six-hour wild cave tour, which included them having helmets with a lantern on, and that was the only light that they had in a majority uh, part of the cave that they were exploring. And uh, they had a good experience. Uh, they kind of followed all the safety precautions. Uh, it, some of the cave exploration included times where they had to cr- crawl through crevices that were literally just 20 inches in, in width and height. Uh, but then they eventually, after the six-hour uh, exploration was over, they were gathering around their vehicle. They were turning their, their equipment in, and they're getting ready for dinner, and they realized that somebody was missing. Max wasn't there. Max was gone. They couldn't find him. He wasn't anywhere to be found. And so uh, what they found out later was uh, Max, uh, in the middle of the, the uh, kind of the exploration, they had taken a break as a troop in a certain part of the cave. Uh, boys had taken off their backpacks, kind of gotten some snacks, gotten some uh, water. And Max uh, had forgotten to put his backpack on, and so the tour continued on. He didn't realize it. They went about 60 seconds further in the exploration, and he realized all of a sudden he forgot his backpack. So he turned around, he went back to get his backpack, crawled through a a crevice to get to where they were at, and uh, got his backpack. He stood up, turned around to walk out of the the entrance to that part of the cave, and he knocked his uh, lamp on the cave wall, and his light went out. He couldn't see anything. And he was kind of embarrassed, and so initially he felt felt around looking for the opening, thinking he could find the opening and then get out, uh, but he couldn't find the opening. And after a couple of minutes, he started to yell for help, but it was too late. The group had moved on. They didn't realize He'd gone missing. And so he was in total darkness. And literally what he ended up doing was he kind of crawled up against the, the side of the cave wall. He put his, his knees up against his chest. And he kind of was crying softly uh, while he was in, alone totally in the dark. Can you imagine what that would have been like, especially for uh, a young boy, alone without a clue as to where to go or what to do, no light. And I've been in a cave before. Uh, we've toured the Carlsbad Caverns as a family. Uh, and I know how completely dark it can get at times. I can't imagine what that would have been like to be like Max, to be alone in that dark place. Now, if I was Max, you know what I would have wanted the most? A light, maybe a map. But you know what, especially like a tour guide to help me get out of that place that I was lost in. I read a devotion recently by a pastor named Rich uh, that talked about the importance of the Bible. And he said when he was a kid that his uh, parents had given him a Bible and it was his first big kid Bible. And inside the front cover, this is what his dad wrote to him. He said, Rich, this book is a roadmap to heaven. Live by these words and you're never, you will never stray from the path. Ignore these words and you'll wander far away from God's plan for your life. Even better, the author of this book will travel with you. Look for him. Listen to him. The one who wrote this book is the one who loves you the most. Well, I do want to invite you to turn to Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It has 176 verses in it. Now, when Pastor Doug was putting this sermon series together on Psalms, uh, he gave me Psalm 119 when he was going to be on vacation. And as I was looking at that this week, I thought, you know what I should do is just have whoever the scripture reader is read the whole chapter, and then I just have to preach for five minutes because that's all the time I would have left. But we just took one section out of here. Um, But, you know, Psalm 119 is all about the Bible. It's all about God's Word. It's full of words like law and statutes and 
precepts and commands and decrees. Basically, Psalm 119 uh, says that God's Word, your Bible, is a light and a map for your whole life. I want to look back at a couple of those verses that were read. One is uh, verse 35 out of that chapter. The Bible says, Direct me in the paths or the path of your commands, for there I find delight. To me, that's really like a, a map or a guide for us that helps us get through life and the circumstances. So the, God's Word is literally like a map for our life. And the second one is verse 105, and it says, Your Word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. Now, these verses and many more in Scripture indicate that God's living Word is literally like a light and a map for our lives. Now, I want to invite you to turn to verses 129 through 136. We're going to look specifically at this section of the chapter. But I want to make a few comments, more comments about 119 in the chapter, kind of as a whole. As I mentioned earlier, this wisdom psalm is by far the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, But it's also got some amazing parts to it that I think when we look at it in the English language, we don't fully get a grasp on what the psalmist was doing here. But literally, this is an alphabetic, uh, acrostic psalm. Let me explain that a little bit. It's got 176 verses. It's divided into 22 stanzas. 22 stanzas are important because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each one of those stanzas begins with a different letter of the alphabet. The word begins with a different alphabet. In fact, each stanza, every verse, there's eight verses in each of these 22 stanzas. Every verse begins with a word that uses that letter for that stanza at the beginning of that verse. So, for example, in verses 1 through 8, the first stanza, every verse begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is like our A. In stanza 2, the 9, 9 through 16, every verse begins with the Hebrew letter Bet, which is kind of like our B, so, and so on and so forth. And so, for our, like if we were using the English language, it would be like the first eight verses, we would use the word A. So we would say things like, your word is adorable, your word is amazing. So each one of those verses would have an A word beginning the verse. The next set of stanzas would be B. Your word is beautiful. So it goes on like this. And so this 129 through 136 is the P stanza. And so each verse begins with a different P word. Now, in the English language, we can't translate it into P words, but they're words that wonderful, unfolding, my mouth, turn, my steps, redeem, your face, and streams. Each one of those in the Hebrew translation begins with a P word in the Hebrew language. So it's just this really amazing thing. If we go back and look now at Psalm 119, and if you ever go through and read that, again, you'll be able to read that with understanding, just about how amazing poetry and what how the psalmist put that all together. So as a whole, the theological uh, theme of the psalm is literally the Word of God. And so in this section, again, it's the 17th letter in the Hebrew alphabet, The psalmist continues to fight against the power of evil, which he realizes is trying to subvert him from following the living God. And so it's literally God's word which delivers him from evil and establishes establishes him in the right. And thus he declares his delight for God's wonderful, amazing word, which gives life and light. So that's what he says in the first part of this stanza. And then he prays and petitions that the Lord would turn to him And establish him by directing, by redeeming, by blessing and teaching him. And then finally, knowing what God's word has done for him, uh, he concludes the stanza by weeping over those in rebellion against God's word. And so in the midst of the rebellion of this world, there's God's divine revelation 
in which works wonders in our life and in our world when we seek him through that. So I want to begin and look at the first three verses of this stanza. And when we look at that, to me, kind of overall, I see that God's word brings spiritual life to us. Again, the psalmist opens this section with the confession that God's words are life-changing. In verse 129, he says, Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. God's words are wonderful in that they they help evoke a sense of awe and wonder because of the God who acts through them. And wonderful means uh, full of astonishing revelations and commands and promises. And their wonder is seen in being free from all error and in their overwhelming demonstration of their truthfulness. God's word, as it instructs and elevates and strengthens them and comforts the soul. So those who know God's word the best wonder at them the most. It's wonderful that God should bear testimony uh, to sinful humans, and even more wonderful that his testimony should be so clear and so full and so gracious and so mighty to save. So with this sense of God's wonder, uh, power before him, he confesses that that it's the only reason he keeps obeying them. Their wonder and their power so impresses itself on his mind that he keeps them in his memory and they become life-giving so that they capture his heart and that he observes them and he desires to live them out, to obey them. So the general wonder of God's word becomes specific, more specific in verse 130. He says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. There's really an image here. Uh, if you describe it in the original language, it's like if we could put these words on a scroll and if I had that scroll all rolled up and then I let go of that scroll and it just kind of fell out in front of you, that it, it literally would almost be like this bright illumination that would come off of that scroll and those words that are read to us. I wish I had the power to do something with special effects like they do in the movies so you could see something that would just be powerful and amazing. But that's kind of the psalmist is saying, as I read your words, God, as I unfold your words, they illuminate. They bring light uh, into my being, into my understanding. And so the psalmist acknowledges the unfolding of your words gives light. Literally, it, it indicates revelation. It's, it's exposition. It's allowing, it's this entrance of God's word into our heart. And this explosion of light in our minds and in our, in our souls is because the revelation of God is an awesome reality. You know, when spirit-led teachers and preachers open up the Word and the light of God's truth shines forth, it offers spiritual transformation. The Spirit of God at work through God's Word changes our lives. It's when we spend time with Him in His Spirit that we experience that transformation in His Word. And oftentimes when I've studied Scriptures, I've experienced what I would describe as, as really a dramatic illumination. This sense of maybe it's a new understanding of who God is or what God has done or, or maybe who I am in relationship to who God is in his holy, awesome nature. It's almost like being in a cavern like Carlsbad Caverns. And there was a time when we took a tour where we walked out of an area that was lit into an area that was dark. Couldn't see anything. And we walked into that darkness and we, we stood in that darkness for a minute. And then, and then they turned the lights on and And amazingly, we were in a cavern that was like 20 times bigger than this space in this room. But we couldn't see it because we didn't have any light. But when they turned the light on, all of a sudden we could see the majesty that was in that cavern, in that space. So that's what it's like when we open up God's Word. And there are times that God's Spirit illuminates our spirit to some new understanding or some experience in the presence of God that helps us 
grow and transforms our lives. At the end of this verse, he mentions the simple. Well, the simple aren't dumb, but they have simply reached the end of themselves and recognizing that in order to know God, God must speak to them and make himself known. We, we can't know God in of ourselves. But it's really as we read God's word that we encounter God and we experience God's presence and we learn about God and we know of him. The written word wasn't written to make us intellectual giants or uh, mystical gurus, but to make us wise and understanding about how we should live life. God's called us out of the darkness to live into the to his light and to live in his marvelous light, we must be taught by his word. Sanduk Ruick is a Nepalese doctor, uh, an eye doctor who uses his scalpel and his microscope and a simplified cataract surgery technique, and he's used it over 70,000 times in his country of Nepal over the last 23 years. And the great thing about it is the poorest of patients who visit his nonprofit eye center in Kathmandu pay with just their gratitude. And I was thinking about that, and I thought about how Jesus healed so many people of their physical blindness during his time on earth, but of greater concern to him were those who were spiritually blind. And many of the religious authorities who investigated the healing of the blind man that we find in John chapter 9, they refused to believe that Jesus was not a sinner. And this caused Jesus to respond to them, saying, For judgment I have come into this world, uh, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. The Apostle Paul talks about spiritual blindness and light uh, when he said, If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, those uh, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You know what? We're in a world in darkness that needs the light of Jesus. The psalmist, again, he says, The unfolding of your words gives light. God's Word is what opens our eyes and and even opens our hearts and cures our spiritual blindness. And so we need to be sure that we open up God's Word and we allow our eyes to see it and so that it might enter our heart and our mind. Because of God's wonderful revelation in His Word, the psalmist desires to receive God's Word. And he says in verse 131, he says, I open my mouth and pant longingly for your commands. He portrays himself as a thirsty animal dying in the desert, dying for water. And as God feeds us from his word, he also increases our thirst for him. It's this amazing thing that happens when we spend time with God and his word. It brings satisfaction. It fulfills us. It brings joy into our life. But also, it's like the spirit of God creates this greater yearning to spend more and more time with him and to to learn more about him and his word. That's the power of God's amazing, wonderful Word. The next four verses, kind of in the middle of this stanza, to me it shows that God's Word uh, causes us to seek help and guidance from God. It's like His His own Word causes us to realize our need and turn to God in that need. And so with His need pressing, the psalmist prays to, to God to see His need in verse 132. He says, Turn to me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. God's presence as he turns to him is a sign of God's divine favor on him. His prayer is, God, turn toward me. Turn toward me 
uh, from whom you have diverted your gaze. His plea is literally here is a plea of grace. It's a plea of mercy. Only divine grace and mercy is going to satisfy the longing of his soul. And it reminds God that such grace or mercy is his promise toward those who love his name. God will respond to our love. To love God's name is to love him as a person and to enter into a relationship with him. And that relationship is sustained and strengthened by every word that proceeds out of his mouth, out of God's mouth. He will send his grace to those who love his word. For the believer experiences the love of God through the word of God. Verse 133 teaches that God's word provides guidance and freedom. He says, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Grace or mercy received in the preceding verse leads to obedience. And so the psalmist writes, he prays, direct God. He says, order. He says, establish my steps in your word. Establish is literally to make firm and to cause me to walk safely in God's direction. He wants his steps to be guided by God. And he also asks that no sin or straying from God's path rule over him. He wants to be controlled by God and by God alone. Rather than by sin or by the enemy or the devil, if only God will establish his word in his heart. You know, during the the, uh, era of the great sea exploration in the 15th and 16th century, as all these explorers were going out to parts of the world that were previously kind of unknown, they were traveling on seas and oceans that literally no one had traveled on for, uh, ever. And they were navigating dangerous coastlines that had never been navigated before. And pilots used kind of various different navigational tools uh, to help them, including a book that was called a rudder. Now, it's not a rudder that's the ship guiding kind of uh, a tool that's on the boat, but rather a rudder with a T. And that rudder was literally a log of events uh, that earlier voyagers had chronicled their encounters with previously unknown and difficult waters. And by reading the sailing details in a rudder, the, cabin, the captains could avoid the hazards and make it through the difficult waters that they would experience. And in many ways, the Christian life uh, is like a voyage. And, and the believer needs help navigating life's perilous seas, right? So we have the help because God has given us a spiritual guide, a, a, a sort of a rudder, for us to use, and that's literally God's Word. He's given us that guide, that, that um, something that we can look at and read and understand God's faithfulness, and it reminds us of God's faithfulness in trying circumstances. And as the psalmist indicates in this passage, perils are found not only in life circumstances, which happen, bad things happen at times, but also because in our, in our inner bent towards sin, we have this human part of our nature that is bent towards sin. And it's the combination of both of those concerns, circumstances, but also our bent nature towards sin, that he prayed, let no sin rule over me. So as we reflect on teaching in the Bible, we're we're reminded of God's past care, but we're also assured of God's guidance moving forward, especially even in trying circumstances. And we're also given warning to avoid sinfulness through God's word. And that's the advantage of having a spiritual rudder a guidebook for us in our life. So only with God's word as our map uh, and his spirit as our compass can we stay on course in our relationship with him and towards eternity with him. In verse 134, he prays to be delivered from those who seek to knock him down. So you know what? We live in a world that has evil present. That at times we encounter people who 
are influenced by sin themselves. Or, you know, they're not always thinking about good things for us. And sometimes there are bad things that happen to us from different people. And so, uh, in this sense, he, he prays. He says, redeem me from human oppression, that I may obey your precepts. And so, like Israel and Egypt, he prays to be brought out of humanity's bondage to, by God's outstretched arm of power. And he says, redeem me. And so redeem me is like a synonym for deliver me, help me. And so to oppress is to seek to lay low, and he wants to be unrestrained in his service uh, to God. And thus his deliverance will lead to obedience. He's going to keep God's precepts. The godly pay even greater attention to the word when circumstances grant greater liberty to do so. And then verse 135 in this section is a prayer for blessing. He's, he's, he's calling out to God. He says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. The psalmist is asking for a full, open relationship with the living and a holy God. An awesome, awesome thing. He, he's asking God to make his face shine. And that sense of making his face shine is literally to bestow his favor on us. So to seek God's face is to seek his presence in our lives. The request, to me, recalls the benediction of Aaron and his sons in the Pentateuch. And earlier, it's actually the earliest recorded blessing that we have in human uh, written documents in God's Word. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance and give you peace. So as God reveals His face to us, He instructs us in His moral statutes. Dan Ariely is an economics professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I read this, this week of a study that he did, uh, some experiments on human behavior. And in one experiment, the participants uh, took an exa- examination in which they would receive money for every correct answer that they got. They knew that going into the test. And I thought, why didn't I ever get one of those exams when I was in college? I never got paid money for right answers. But the real purpose of the study, and the participants didn't know this, was that Ariely was not testing their knowledge, but rather they, if they would cheat or not. He set up the test so that the groups thought it would be easy to cheat and not get caught. And so prior to taking the exam, one group was asked to write down as many of the Ten Commandments as they could remember. And to Ariely's astonishment, none of this group cheated on the exam. But all the other groups did have those who cheated. And so recalling a moral benchmark made the difference between the groups. Centuries ago, the psalmist, when he wrote this passage, he understood the need for a moral benchmark and asked for divine aid in following it. And he prayed to the Lord. He said, teach me your decrees. So Ariely's cheat test experiment illustrates our need for moral guidance, that God has given us his word to direct us in our moral choices. And then we come to the last verse in this section, 136. And as I read that, I think about God's word causes compassion for the lost. The the writer's longing reminds him of those who reject God's word. And thus he concludes by crying for them in, in verse 136. He cries, literally, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. You know, humanity's spiritual blindness and rebellion causes him to weep. And I find the more that I read God's Word, the more compassion I have in my life for those who don't know God, for those who haven't experienced God through His Word, for those who don't have God's 
guidance and God's uh, light and God's map for their life through His Word. They're missing out on God's wisdom and His, His guidance, His insight and His comfort. They're missing out on the presence of the living God in their life. And just like Jesus weeps over the lostness of Jerusalem, in my mind it feels like, you know, we should have a burden in our life for the lost. And as I read that verse and I thought about it, I thought, when was the last time I wept for someone who's lost? There have been times, but it's been a while. And it made me think about, you know, the blessed card that we have that we fill out earlier this spring where we list the people that we're praying for that God has laid on our heart. And you know, it really caused me to go back to that and to really with intentionality and with passion to pray for those that God had laid on my heart and just encourage you to do that as well. You know, there's a burden that this writer feels for those who have rejected or don't know God's Word. And so I just want to encourage us to continue to be in intercession for those who don't know Christ. So in closing, uh, I just wanted to come back to that story about Max. Don't want to leave you hanging worried about Max, okay? So what happened to Max? Well, Max was in the cave for 10 hours all alone. That's a long time, isn't it? The park rangers had to get organized. Uh, Then they set up two rescue teams. They sent in one from the entrance and one from the exit until they figured out where he was at. When they found him, he wouldn't take a step on his own without his own helmet lantern. And in their hurry to get to find him, they didn't bring an extra helmet and an extra lamp. And he told him he wasn't going to go anywhere unless he had a light on top of his head so he could see the steps he needed to take in the cave. And so one of the rescuers gave up his helmet and his lamp so he would have one. So he wouldn't move unless he could see the path ahead. Do you remember the words that I read from the pastor to his son when, they, when he and his wife gave him a, a Bible? I want to read them again. The pastor wrote, This book is a road map to heaven. Live by these words, and you'll never stray from the path. Ignore these words, and you'll wander far away from God's plan for your life. Even better, the author of this book will travel with you. Look for him. Listen to him. The one who wrote this book is the one who loves you the most. You know, many of you, I know, believe in Jesus. And I I know you read your Bible, and you follow it, you know, with your lives. And you've got the one. We have that assurance that you have the one who wrote the book to guide you your entire life. Some of you, however, maybe you're in a place where you've wandered away from God a little bit. And you rarely look at the Bible these days and you feel a little bit lost. Maybe you feel like Max in a dark place, in a dark world, and you don't know where to turn. I want to give you some good news. The same God who loves you this morning loves you even when you're lost. And he's willing to show you his love through the Bible, through his word. And when you're in the darkness, this will be your light, your guiding light. And when you don't know where to go, this will be your map. This will show you where to go and what steps to take. I want to end the message with a blessing that comes out of the beginning of this chapter in 119. The first two verses, if you've got your scriptures, you can turn there. But this is what he writes at the beginning of the chapter. It says, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. You know, the Bible can be the most important book that we own. Or it can just be another book that gathers dust on the bookshelf. It's really up to you and me. What kind of book is this going to be? 
Is it really going to be a book that we use in our life to be a light and a guide, a map for our lives? Let me pray. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the blessing, the gift of your word, your living word, that you have reached out in your wisdom and in your love to reveal yourself to us, even in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in our rebellion. God, that your purpose was to reveal yourself in and through your word. God, we're thankful for this gift that literally comes to us. And that as we spend time with you in and through your word, we learn more about you, we learn more about ourselves. But most importantly, God, it's the way that we can really encounter or experience your presence in our lives. That we know that you're at work in and through your living word in our lives. God, help us to be people who seek you, seek your words, to make these words really become a part of our life. That it becomes more than just a book, but it literally becomes the light and the map for our lives. God, help us. Help your spirit to prompt our spirits to seek you through your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.